Sooner or later, virtually every person of faith experiences some form of doubt. But is it wrong to doubt? What causes it? And what do we do when it happens? No doubt about it. Today, you'll get some answers. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is a popular speaker, author, and scholar dealing with today's most pressing spiritual issues. And recently, Pat hosted a conference in Hawaii addressing these cutting-edge topics. Today, you'll hear one of the featured speakers, Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas is a leading expert on the resurrection of Jesus, but he also writes and speaks on the issue of doubt when it comes to our faith in God. By the way, we have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Pat Zucharin's articles, books, audio from past shows, debates, and more available right now for download at evidenceandanswers.org. And now, Dr. Zucharin presents Gary Habermas on dealing with doubt. Emotional issues are the most common when it comes to questions of doubt. Emotional issues. I'll just remember that, and I'm going to go right in there. Let me define doubt as uncertainty, uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to Him. Uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to Him. And of course, the closer that uncertainty gets to the center, the more we feel the pain. Now, here's some examples. It may come in an area of a factual truth. For example, can I really believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, hey, you've got to go read this book by so-and-so. It's a great volume with good evidence on the nature of Scripture. Well, if you get really basic, you might go to work someday and get upset by somebody who says there's no God, and you come home and you wonder, what kind of argumentation do we have for that? Or creation, or heaven, or hell. Factual doubt asks questions that are solved by the data. I'm going to tell you something. There's no area where Christianity is stronger than factual arguments for the heart of our beliefs. I'll tell you something else. No religion, no other religion in general, there are, are almost no examples of religions that will even try to compete with us. Because many religions will say, it's all by faith. That might surprise you, because too often Christians say that. So if you have a factual question, you solve it with factual data. Factual doubt is relatively simple. It would be like a broken leg. You say, well, that's not very simple. No, but a simple break is easier than a compound break, is easier than tearing a ligament. Factual doubt is like a clean break. Here's a clue. If your questions and your bother continue after the question's been been answered, that's a good hint that it's not factual doubt. Here's another kind. I don't have any question Christianity's true, but I sure wished I knew I was a member of the fold. Man, I just wish God would, you know, write me that love letter, and I would like God to give me a little business card that says, you're in the body of Christ, and I would plasticize that, and I would take it everywhere be the dearest thing I own. The assurance of salvation is a real common issue. A third kind would be questions like we dealt with today. Silence. How come my prayers don't get past the ceiling? How come God doesn't generally give me what we want? The bill over here, he gets everything he prays for. And lastly, why do bad things happen to good people? Pain and suffering. Those are just some issues, some examples of doubt. Is this doctrine true? How do I know I'm saved? How do I get God to talk to me? And why do bad things happen to good people? I know of no subject in Christianity, theology, practice, apologetics. I know of no other area which has more incorrect twists and turns than this topic. And the key to getting that bomb in that delivery system 
on doubt as at least getting close to the end without making wrong turns, right? Like getting anywhere else. What are some of the wrong turns? Here's some false beliefs, in my opinion, about doubt. Number one, doubt is always sin. You know something? There are dozens and dozens of passages about doubt in the Bible. And if I ask you to name a few, you might struggle a little bit. You know why? It doesn't preach, and it seldom comes up in sermons. And because we all ask questions at some time, I think, are so close to 100%, again, because we're A, finite, B, sinners, we are creatures that want answers. Nobody wants to admit, including the person talking, doesn't want to admit, I've been there too. I will tell you this, I went through a period of skepticism, pretty involved skepticism, after I came to Christ. My mother called me after I had finished my PhD, and she said, are you coming with your question? And I said, I think I'm about three months from becoming a Buddhist. She wasn't too excited. I went through about 10 to 15 years of doubt, and I searched, and I was torn up, and I wish somebody would have t- told me some of these things. But when you tell yourself, it's bad enough to doubt, but when you tell yourself you're a loser because you're doubting, that just compounds things. Do you know that almost every major believer in Scripture about whom we have good information, a good amount of information, goes through major questions? Now, you know Job's name is almost synonymous with, with doubting and hurting and wanting to debate God and everything else. Probably the next two people who suffer the most with doubt, David or Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham has more run-ins, you know, and we remember when Sarah lied, but do you remember that a chapter earlier, God told Abraham he'd be the father of many nations, and it says, Abraham fell on the ground laughing. It's pretty rough. I think if that happened to me, I'd be looking for the lightning. Doubt is not always sin. Here's one example. You know John the Baptist? He's in prison. He's on his deathbed. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And you remember the questions they ask? Are you the Messiah? Uh, that's, that's enough. But the next question, or should we look for another? Lord, are you the Messiah? John the Baptist's disciple, directed by John, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus does not tell John's disciples, well, you tell John. If he's doubting, Go tell him to jump in the lake. I'm not answering his questions. He knows better than that. No, he uses apologetics. Go tell John about the miracles you've seen. The lame walk, the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Which I take to be something like this. I take the answer to be, John, hang in there, man. And it's when the disciples walk away, that's when John is complimented. You ever know that? When John is told, when Jesus tells the group that John is the most righteous man ever born of a woman, it's doubting John who is complimented. How do you know he was doubting? Because the two disciples had just walked away to take the answer back to John, and that's what Jesus said to the crowd about. So doubt is very common. It can occur to strong believers. Why? Once again, we're finite. We're sinners. We all need assurance of one type or another. Doubt is not the unpardonable sin. I'm not saying you can't go from there something else, but I mean, just the fact that you're asking questions. What about John's question? Should we look for someone else? Okay, here's some more. Doubt is not solved by the same delivery system every time. This might surprise you. I used to think apologetics, good evidences, was the answer to doubt. The answer? Facts are a good foundation from which to launch into doubt. 
But facts by themselves will solve very little doubt. You know why? Because the vast majority of doubt is not factual. I've been working with a clinical psychologist for about 15 years. He's the director of our PhD program in counseling. We've been testing adults, giving them questionnaires, and coordinating these questionnaires that identify their current state with what kind of questions they have. We're getting ready to publish this material in a, in a scholarly journal. Guess what? About 70 to 80 percent of all doubt is emotional in nature, not factual. You want another surprise? It's about the same way when unbelievers have doubt. I remember the line from C.S. Lewis, there are some days after I came to Christ when I had questions about Christianity that were very tough. He said, I want to tell you something. When I was an atheist, there were some days in which Christianity looked terribly probable. He says, so I have a principle. Unless you can tell your emotions where to get off, says Lewis, you can't be a sound Christian nor a sound atheist but you will simply be a creature dithering to and fro depending on the latest state of your digestion. In other words, which way is the wind blowing? Until you can tell your emotions where to get off. All right, so there's a lot of misbeliefs about doubt. And if you, if you go after yourself or believe the wrong thing, you'll probably choose the wrong delivery system to bring the goods to yourself. I usually distinguish three species of doubt. Number one, factual doubt. Affects, as nearly as we can tell, about 15% of doubters. Now, I want to be real clear about something. When I say it affects so many doubters, I'm talking about primarily this kind of doubt. Do you ever think when you go to see a, a physician and you have multiple symptoms, oh, by the way, this has been hurting, and by the way, this has been hurting. Well, a physician may be able to give you, let's say, an antibiotic, and maybe the response is like this. Well, the antibiotic will work on your, let's say, bronchitis. You go, oh, by the way, my throat has been really, really sore. Well, look, you got strep throat for any reason, it'll take care of both of them. So sometimes a physician makes choices as to how to treat, and oftentimes it's the worst symptoms that are treated and the ones that can't be treated. You know, you've heard this one before. You've got a virus. I can't do anything for you. Drink a lot of water. Get some sleep. Call me in two years if it doesn't get better. Can't always do, do something for everybody, but you try to treat the best symptoms. Almost everybody has mixed symptoms. So I'm talking about the primary symptom. About 15% doubt, doubters are factual. I already told you about 60, 70, 80% of doubters are emotional, and about another 50% are volitional. Well, all doubt's volitional, right? You've chosen to do it. Volitional doubt has to do with the will, right. But volitional doubters, especially the worst they get, this would be a kind of serious volitional doubter. You knew somebody who was a leader of your church, they've held almost every major position, Sunday school superintendent, adult teacher, deacon, elder, and they don't even go to yours or any other good church anymore. 20 years later, they're still not going. You say to them, man, what's up? Forgive me for pushing, but we're buddies and I'm, I'm worried about you. What's going on? Yeah, I'm just taking a shot. But do you have questions about the truth of Christianity? And a serious volitional daughter will often answer like this, no, no, I think Christianity's true. Why aren't you coming? Why aren't you fellowshipping with us? Yeah, I think it's true. I just don't think it's relevant. Who says that? Somebody who's been hurt thinks the message is true, but not worth the payout, not worth the time it takes. Tired of being hurt. I prayed and prayed and prayed and my son died and sorry, but I just don't care. How do you motivate someone who doesn't want to be motivated? A volitional doubter at least gives appearance of not caring. Emotional doubters most frequently ask factual questions, but not for factual reasons. 
That's it. They sound like they're factual questions. How do I know it's true? Who do you want, a list of evidences? No, I'm just hurting. Ah, that's a key. Factual doubt, simple, clean breaks, i.e., simple factual doubt is solved by the facts. If you give the person the data, they don't keep hurting. If you hear the data, but your response is like this, yeah, but what if it's false? The key to emotional doubt is the what if question. Yeah, but what if we're wrong? Do you think we are? No, but what if we are? What if I was born in another country? What if my parents believe something differently? Data are still the data. Is it true? For me, the key question is, is the foundation true? That's the key question. But the emotional doubter goes not by whether they have plenty of data. They can have 20 arguments for every question they have and still hurt. So what do you do about it? What's the bomb? The bomb in this case is that Christianity is true and it is well-grounded. And the truth of the resurrection, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, the best explanation is Jesus is who he claims to be. And if Christianity is true, you've got the bomb. Most factual doubters that are really churned up, they're churned up about non-central factual things. You ever think about this? Christians are almost always at war with each other over issues that are not central. Not always, but they're almost always at war over issues that are not central. That's why we have different denominations. But if you said, what about the deity of Christ? No, no one's going to say, oh, that's not important. That's periphery. We don't believe that in our evangelical church. You'd say, well, you're not an evangelical church. We don't believe that. Christians stand back to back on virtually every fundamental issue. We get churned up about not non-fundamental areas because we treat all theology alike. We don't see these differentiations. Read, read Romans 14 sometime. Paul takes the two pithiest issues of his day. Should you be a vegetarian or can you eat meat? And by implication, he's answering the very difficult question, can you eat meat offered to idols? Probably the hottest ethical question. And he picks the toughest theological question at that time. On what day do you worship? You know something interesting? Paul does not say, if you take this view on the meat, you're right, and if you take this view on the fourth command, you're right. He said, some eat, some don't. Some worship on a certain day and some worship on other days. He says, answer, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And then he says, who are you to judge somebody else for not taking your view? Because you can believe that Paul doesn't think one of those two issues solves the question of whether you're a Christian or not. But they're pithy issues. But if you're really interested in the data, and as we get close to the gospel, once again, deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, and I'm telling you something, we are at our strongest on those issues. I've got a good friend, a creationist scientist, who says to me on occasion, he thinks there's excellent arguments for creation. Excellent. He used to be a theistic evolutionist. He thinks there's excellent arguments for creation. But he said to me, I wish we had the arguments for creation that you have for the resurrection. He said, we can't, in our field, use the enemy's data and prove the case to it. Now, sometimes you can. You go a long way with creation studies. But it's difficult to turn the case back that way. There's some exceptions. But for the most part, that's just a hint about factual doubts. Oftentimes, we go after issues that are not central. Okay, what about emotional doubts? First of all, a psychological truth, which I think is thoroughly taught in God's Word, and then I'm going to look at a passage in Philippians chapter 4. Many Christian and non-Christian, this is by far the most dominant counseling theory today, the vast majority of Christian counselors use this principle. 
And it's, it's often called the ABC method of counseling. And again, it's very simple, and you can learn to do it. A's are what happened to you. This is developed by Albert Ellis. And A's are activating events. We are a blaming people. We almost always say, I am what I am because some loser did something to me. It's not me. You don't know my dad. You don't know my boss. You don't know my kid. And we think that A's, things that happen in our lives, cause our C's, consequences. Everybody will give you a list of what A's cause C's in their life, if they're willing to talk about it. But in hundreds of experiments, guess what? A's don't cause C's. And notice I didn't say A's don't have any consequences. A's can hurt. Things that happen to you can hurt. But they don't cause psychological consequences, by and large. You know what causes psychological consequences in your life? In between A's and C's are B's, your beliefs. The most painful thing in life, in general, let's say, is that it's not what happens to you that causes the majority of your pain. It's how you download what happens to you. It's like, you know, the old sticks and stones may break my bones. People can say things to you that are very nasty. At what point do they become very, very painful? Answer, when you internalize them. When you agree, I'm a loser, I'm stupid. I'm not talking about self-esteem, in case you wonder. But when you say I'm a loser, I have no value to anybody, when you start saying things like that, serious pain results, usually forms of anxiety disorder or depression. And let me just be real clear about something. I'm not an anti-medicine person. But I do think there's an awful lot we can do to straighten out our own thinking. The scripture says so too. So the psychological truth, and I'll take you to one passage that teaches this, a lot of passages that teach this. The psychological truth is that what happens to you is not as painful as how you download what happens to you. And what you tell yourself, if you believe lies in key areas of your life, prepare yourself for a lot of potential pain. But if you internalize lies, you'll usually hurt. If you say to yourself things like this, well, God may love Jennifer. I don't think he loves me. But you're a Christian. Why? Well, just look. Jennifer has all her prayers answered. I don't have any prayers answered. Now, you notice the lies involved here? God is a respecter of persons. If I think God hasn't answered my prayer, therefore he hasn't. God never answers. The only reason he doesn't answer prayer is because you're not a Christian. Those, those aren't true. But if you tell yourself that, you'll be in pain. What do couples say when they, when they fight over long periods of time? You stay in your half of the house, I'll stay in mine, okay? I just don't really care to talk. We say that to God sometimes. You stay in your half of the universe, I'll stay in mine. Just leave me alone. And that's the guy who gets to the point where he thinks it's true, he's just tired of being hurt. He thinks God is hurt, but he's hurt by his own beliefs, his own comments. So what do we do? We exchange our lies for truth. Bingo. Romans chapter 1, verse 25. What characterizes these people in Romans 1? Various sorts of sins. What characterizes them? They love to believe the lie. What should believers do? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, says the King James, give yourself, a living, give yourself as a living sacrifice. How do you do that? What's the delivery system? Romans 12, 2. By changing the way you think. By changing the way you think. Quit lying. There's a lot of passages that do this. Here's one for you. Proverbs 15, 15b. He that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Think about that. Every day can be Thanksgiving. And over and over again, the Proverbs say, it's people who speak the truth to themselves, or it says, speak the truth to each other so you can build them up.
my clinical psychologist buddy calls this being somebody else's surrogate frontal lobe. You know what that means? If they're always eh, kind of Eeyore, everything goes badly with me, God always stomps on me, never does anything right, do their thinking for them. What do you mean? Well, like this. Do you always lie to yourself like this? What do you mean? Do you always say that because God doesn't answer prayer the way you think he should? This person's a good friend, right? Therefore, he doesn't love you? Is it that simple? Well, I didn't exactly say that. Oh, okay, so let me try it again. I just feel really, really sorry for myself, and I wish somebody would do something for me. Is that what you're saying? No, I didn't really say that either. And you kind of, and you just repeat to them what they should be saying to themselves. How about this truth, either for ourselves or for somebody else? We all know Christians who are caught up in the things of the world. Materialism has come up more than once. But Christians try to keep up with everybody else in the world, and they think they're going to be happy by the things they acquire. Okay, there's a place to start. How about this one-liner? Christians don't have to do anything to be happy and well-adjusted. They don't have to own the nicest homes, live in the nicest part of town, drive the nicest cars, have the best jobs, be the best-looking, be the best athletes, wear the best clothes, look the best. All a Christian has to be to be happy and well-adjusted is in Christ, and that's free. I, I knew that. Well, then live like you knew that. Don't say, I know that, and then say, if I don't make X amount of dollars, I can't be a fulfilled person. Here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, be anxious for nothing. Do you know what? Anxiety, in that passage, Paul's use of the Greek, indicates that the Philippians to whom he was writing were currently in a state of anxiety. Whoa. There's another truth. Christians can be anxious. You say, well, you don't have to tell me. But a lot of people doubt that. Paul is talking to people who were anxious, and he says, stop it. Watch the advice Paul gives. He gives four suggestions. I don't think there's anything holy about these four for the order. I think you can do other ones. Why do I say that? Because other passages give other things you can do. But here's some delivery systems of God's truth. He says, first of all, pray. Petition God. He doesn't really tell us how to, so maybe we get some help from 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. First thing you can do, give your anxiety to God. That's his job. Number two, I, I'm going to separate this one out. Paul says, with thanksgiving. How many of you have praised or worshipped during a time of a, emotional upheaval in your life? I began to look at my issue from God's perspective. Well, guess what? When you do that, a lot of the pain lifts. So Paul says, number one, pray. Number two, give thanks. He's going to say later, praise. So we can put that together. I know they're not the same, but thanksgiving and praise. Verse 8, he says, finally, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. What's he telling you to do? Take your anxious thoughts that caused your anxiety in verse 6. Quit believing what caused you the anxiety and feed God's truth in place of it. Change your thinking. That is probably the number one thing to do here and what all both secular and Christian strategies tell you to do. Stop lying to yourself. It's like a contrast between Romans 125 and Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, take your anxiety and put God's truth in its place. You have to verbally stop lying to yourself. Locate the lies you're telling yourself. Stop lying to yourself. You build your life on data, not on the absence of data, not on what ifs. Lastly, he says, verse 9, practice these things. And the Greek indicates, keep it up. Keep practicing. Whatever you've seen in me, do these things. When's the best time to practice this stuff? When you're hurt. When's the second best time to practice it? 
when you're not hurt. You know why? If you're into that way of thinking right now, that's the way your personality works, and you know it's going to come up again because you're you, and I'm me. So work on it when you need it for relief, and work on it when you don't need it because you will need it again. Folks, I've done this with probably, I probably had 500 sessions with doubters. Here's the incredible news. You ready? I'm serious. I've never been told by a doubter, I tried it and it doesn't work. It actually results in pain alleviation. And in one major experiment, it works better than medicine at relieving pain. Because you know why? When you take medicine, you gotta keep feeling the pain, you gotta keep taking the medicine. When you teach yourself how to think, you've learned the truth that often keeps the pain from coming back. Proper thinking about truth. You can have truth, misapply it, and hurt like everything. Be an incredible pain, because you misapply truth. Key is, apologetics, that's true, proper thinking about it, and proper thinking with one another, speak the truth to each other, help each other through their issues. You've been listening to Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the speakers featured in the great lineup at the Evidence and Answers Conference in Hawaii. And we want to thank you so much for joining us today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Again, the entire conference with a great lineup of speakers and topics is available right now at evidenceandanswers.org. And it's our hope that you've gotten a lot of good information from this program, and we'd like to hear from you. So go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and give us your feedback. Browse our resources while you're there, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And no matter your spiritual background, you'll find fascinating topics and an intelligent presentation of the claims of Christ. We'd also ask that you support us financially. Your gifts help keep this program on the air. So just click the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. And again, we would really appreciate your vote of confidence. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker.